today uh, we're, we're starting a new series, and uh, it'll have a similar title for those of you who've been here more than a couple of years, uh, but this series is called Summer in the Psalms, and uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to spend some intentional time as a church family uh, in the book of Psalms. In fact, this will be the third year that we've done this, and uh, I don't know about you, but this is something that I look forward to every single year. Now, if you look inside your bulletin this morning, um, you'll notice that we've included a Psalms reading guide uh, that you can read through over the next few weeks. And if you read one Psalm per day, uh, five days a week, uh, you'll have read through the third book of Psalms by the time that we finish our series. And I'm going to talk more about why the Psalms are organized or categorized into five different books uh, later on in the message Today. So before we jump into this psalm, I want to spend some time teaching on the book of Psalms as a whole. And uh, this is more uh, maybe teacher and uh, professor moment, and then we'll shift gears and get into preacher mode, if that's okay with you. And I, I look forward to doing this uh, for the first message of our psalm series you know, every time. So if you, uh, if you do want to have some deeper study throughout this series, um, there's a few commentaries that I can recommend to you this morning. Uh, John Stott, uh, many of you may be familiar with John Stott. He wrote a great commentary called uh, Growing Closer to God, and that's one that I would recommend. He explores some of his favorite psalms. Uh, the psalm that we're going to look at today is actually in his commentary. And then author Warren Wearsby, you've heard me talk about Warren Wearsby several times as one of my favorite commentators. Uh, he has two different books that cover all of the psalms. And so I would encourage you to check out both of those if you like some additional reading. Well, in the uh, introduction to his first commentary, uh, Warren Wearsby had this to say about the psalms. He says that the book of Psalms uh, has been and still is the irreplaceable devotional guide, uh, prayer book, and hymnal of the people of God. That's his one-liner to describe the book of Psalms. And I think he does a, a great job doing that. You know, we, we don't study the Psalms the same way that we might study um, other books of the Bible, especially when we get to the New Testament. Uh, the Psalms are, are meant to be read devotionally. Uh, they're meant to be prayed during difficult seasons, as well as seasons of prosperity in our lives. They're meant to be sung by the church as we worship God together. Now, the Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is the word Tehillim. Tehillim. Let's say that together on the count of three. One, two, three. Tehillim. Yeah, it's a fun word to say. It means the book of praises. That's how God's people in Old Testament times would have understood the Psalms, the book of praises. Now, the Greek translation, um, it uses the word psalmos, which means a song sung to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. Now, I, I kind of love that, and, and not to, you know, uh, bring up anything that might be... Uh, Difficult for some, but I especially think with, you know, the history of the Restoration Movement and the history of the Church of Christ in general, you know, you look at something like the book of Psalms that so clearly points a, uh, paints a picture of God's people worshiping with instruments. I think it's a beautiful thing, and we see that in the New Testament as well. But for generations, the Psalms have been used as a songbook for God's people. And today we call this collection of songs, uh, poems, and prayers, we call them the Psalms, but also the Psalter, the Psalter. So let me break that down for you a little bit. As a devotional book, how can we use the Psalms? Well, they act as a guide. They help us to connect with our Heavenly Father. They uh, shape how we relate to God, and they uh, help us learn what it's like to live the kind of lives that God has called us to live. You, you find all of that in the Psalms. 
as a book of prayers. The Psalms give us a front row seat to the raw emotion expressed by people who cried out to God during extremely difficult seasons. As a book of songs and praises, they, they help us worship God for who he is. They teach us more about his character and his nature and who we are created to be as God's most prized creation. In the early church, the Psalms were used uh, to aid in the preaching of the gospel. They were read aloud to, to offer encouragement in the midst of difficult times. And they were a regular part of the church's worship. And they're still a regular part of our worship today. We sing a lot of songs that come directly from the Psalms. Uh, some of these songs actually will have just a simple title, like uh, you know, Psalm 119 or Psalm 1. Uh, so we sing songs that come directly from the Psalms. Now, a, fun, a couple of fun facts about the Psalms. Um, it's the longest book in terms of chapters that we have in the Bible. So I have a few questions for you today. And if you've gone through the Summer in the Psalms series with us in the past, you should know all of these uh, questions, the answers, okay? So I'm going to rely on you this morning. But you can just raise your hand or you can just say it out loud. But who can tell me how many chapters are in the book of Psalms? I heard it over here, 150. Okay, this is the group that always pays attention on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if this side can redeem itself. Well, as the, the book with the most chapters, Psalms also contains the longest chapter in the Bible. Who can tell me what the longest chapter is? 119, yeah. Now, who knows how many verses are in 119? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> There's 176 verses, and I've been thinking ahead of time, okay, when we get uh, to that part of, uh, I believe it's uh, book five, when we get to book five of Psalms, how in the world am I going to preach on Psalm 119? That's like a year's worth of preaching, and so we'll, we'll see. But uh, Psalms also contains the shortest chapter in the Bible. Who can tell me what the shortest chapter is? 117. Yeah, and how many verses are there? Do we know? Two. Two verses. You were close. <laughs> My wife told me this weekend, she said, how would you preach a sermon on that? And uh, that's a good question, too. <laughs> you, you guys would love that, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, finally, the book of Psalms contains the very middle chapter in the Bible. Who can tell me what chapter that is? Yeah, 118. So I think that's interesting. The longest chapter in the Bible, 119. The shortest chapter in the Bible, 117. And then the very middle chapter in your Bible is Psalm 118. Now, the book of Psalms uh, is the Old Testament book that is most often quoted in the New Testament. There are over 400 uh, direct references or uh, quotations or indirect references um, made to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Over 400. Um, Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. And one author said it this way, that uh, if the Psalms were important to Jesus... Uh, then they should be important in our lives as well. Amen? If the Psalms were important to Jesus, they should be important in our lives as well. Well, no other Old Testament book uh, teaches us as much about God all at once um, as the Psalms. In fact, all five of the major attributes of God are found in the Psalms. There we learn that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, that God is everywhere present, that God is eternal in his existence. That God is unchangeable in his character. We find all of this in the book of Psalms. So for generations, God has used the Psalms to speak directly to his people, showing us uh, that we can encounter God 
in every situation in life. In fact, I would say that every situation in life is represented in the Psalms. So the question becomes, how are we supposed to cover the Psalms in a meaningful way if we're only going to be in this series for four weeks this summer? And uh, there are really four ways, I think, or four methods that we could use to study or read through the Psalms. And I'll give these to you just briefly this morning. The first method, we'll throw this up on the screen uh, this morning. The first method is what we call the book method, the book method. And so there are five books uh, or five divisions in the book of Psalms. And if you were to open your Bible this morning to Psalm chapter 1, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Most translations uh, will say book 1, Psalms 1 through 41. So those first 41 chapters are a part of book 1. And then as you read through the Psalms, uh, you'll find all five books. So why are the Psalms divided into five books? Why don't we see this with other books of the Bible? Well, it's believed that uh, the Jewish rabbis organized the Psalms this way so they would reflect the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So book one, Psalms 1 through 41, reflects Genesis. And the key word here uh, is man, and specifically learning to trust God and to live for God. Uh, even when we are uh, sinful people, learning to rely on God in our lives. Uh, Book 2 is Psalms 42 through 72, and that reflects uh, Exodus. The key word there is deliverance, God delivering his people. So you're going to see a lot of language like that in Book 2. Uh, book three, uh, which is what we're gonna, uh, where we're going to camp over the next four weeks, uh, reflects Leviticus. And the key word here is sanctuary. Uh, another word would be worship. Uh, so we're going to see a lot that God has to say about worship over the next few weeks. Uh, book four, which is Psalms uh, 90 through 106, reflects the book of Numbers. Uh, the key word there is wandering, uh, wandering in our faith. And then book five, uh, Psalms 107 through 150, reflects Deuteronomy, and the key word here, it's really a phrase, it's the the word of God. There's a lot to say here about trusting God, the word of God. Um, So each book within the Psalms contains key words and key themes that point us back to the first five books of the Bible. So that's that's the book method. These next three will go much quicker. Uh, Next, you have the authorship method. You could study the Psalms and read the Psalms based off of the authorship method. There there are a number of authors in the book of Psalms, with King David being the most prominent. He wrote almost half of the Psalms. David wrote 73. Then you have a man by the name of Asaph. We're going to become acquainted with him over the next few weeks. Uh, He wrote 12. Uh, You have the sons of Korah, who wrote 11. Uh, Haman and Ethan, uh, they wrote 2. Uh, You have King Solomon who wrote two. Uh, Moses wrote one of the Psalms. And then the remaining 49 are just anonymous. We we don't know who wrote them. So that's the authorship method. Uh, Then you have what's called the subject matter method. There are a long list of subjects and themes uh, that are covered throughout the Psalms. There there are Psalms of distress. There are Psalms of praise. There there are Psalms of uh, judgment. There are Psalms of prayer. There are psalms about people who are blessed by God, and then there are also psalms about people who will be judged by God. There are psalms that teach us about the attributes of God. There there are messianic psalms that point us to the Messiah, that point us to Jesus, and there are devotional psalms. So that would be the subject matter method. And then finally, you have what's called the style method. You could read the psalms, study the psalms this way. Um, Some of your translations 
will tell you what style a particular psalm is written in. And they will use a a Hebrew word to define that style. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, I cannot pronounce half of these words or most of these words, and I I don't expect you to be able to do that either. So for this series, uh, my plan is to preach through the third book of Psalms using the first method. It's the book method. And that's been our approach for every single Summer in the Psalms series. Um, Do I think it's the best method? Not necessarily, but I think for a sermon series, it it makes the most sense. And so I've chosen four psalms from the third book that we're going to cover in greater detail. And again, if you want to spend more uh, personal time in all 17 of these psalms, um, you can follow along in your, your psalms reading guide. And I would encourage you to do that. If you read one psalm a day, five days a week, you'll finish that third book by the time we finish our series. All right, can I switch gears a little bit this morning? I'll go more into preacher mode now. Are we ready for that? Okay, you don't seem too thrilled, but we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Well, today I'm going to preach from Psalm 73. And I don't know if it's because this is what's been the psalm that's most fresh in my mind right now, but I told my wife this week this has been my favorite psalm uh, to read and study and then just the anticipation to preach. I really love this psalm. And uh, this was written by a man by the name of Asaph. Uh, Asaph was a Levite who was uh, a musician. He was a worship leader in the sanctuary and we believe during King David's reign. And so... Um, you know, Jim, he had kind of your role, I guess. He was the worship leader in the, in the church. And uh, there are 12 psalms in total that are attributed to Asaph, most of which are found in book three. Uh, there's only one psalm that's not in book three, I believe, that, that he wrote. And so, you know, many, many Christians, and I've heard this and I know you have too, many Christians have asked this question, um, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, Psalm 73 highlights um, Asaph's struggle with the opposite question. Not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things seem to happen to bad people? And uh, another way to put this would be, why do the righteous seem to suffer while the ungodly seem to prosper? Um, The book of Job, uh, Psalm 37, Psalm 49, they also deal with this, this question. So as a worship leader, Asaph really struggled with this. You know, how could, how could he effectively lead God's people in worship when he himself had so many doubts and so many struggles in his life? Well, I think it's amazing that it was through worship uh, that he actually found the answer to his problem. So as a worship leader, it was through worship that he found the answer to his problem. And as we read through this psalm, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So I'd like to pray together before we jump in and just ask God to bless our time this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you, Lord, for bringing us together today. And I thank you uh, that your word is timeless. And uh, Lord, we can come back to your word and and rediscover um, your truths, Lord, and and what it means, what it looks like to live uh, the lives that you've called us to live and who you are, Lord, your your character and your nature. Um, God, this is a question that we're going to look at today. And I know many of us have asked ourselves, we look around the world and we say, why do good things seem to happen to bad people? And uh, Lord, your word uh, certainly gives us some clarity with this. And so help us to rely on you. Uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be our teacher and that you would uh, convict us, Lord, where we need conviction, that um, you would help us to live faithful lives for you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Psalm 73 begins with what I'm going to call a statement of proposition. We'll read this first verse together. We'll put it up on the screen. Psalm 73, verse 1, Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel. He makes this statement, and then he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. So this is the assumption that Asaph begins with, that God is good, but specifically to those who are also good. That's his assumption. But he had a dilemma that we read about in verses 2 and 3. So we'll jump to these verses. Asaph wrote that, As for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I, almost, I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. So the psalmist, possibly in Babylon, looks around and sees certain Babylonians uh, doing really well in life. These are people that do not love God. They don't follow God. But they seem to be doing really well in life. These people were very proud of their achievements. Um, They were proud of their lifestyle, proud of their wealth that they had accumulated, their position in society. And so you have Asaph here. He's a captive in a foreign land. And things just didn't seem right to him. It wasn't adding up in his head. If God is so good, uh, then why do the ungodly seem to prosper? Why do good things seem to happen to bad people? Well, he doesn't stop with this question and this statement. Uh, Verses 4 through 12 provide a detailed description of the people Asaph was referring to, the people that he was writing about. Now, as you read this, Um, This morning, you may think about images of people in our own society, people in our own culture, the the movie stars that, you know, the movies we watch, the famous YouTubers, uh, the face that's on the cover of People magazine when you're checking out at the grocery store. These are the people that we tend to admire, and we have assumptions about their lives, but these assumptions are just simply not true. Listen to Asaph's description of all of these people. He says, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. So from the outside looking in, he's like, man, they don't have any problems at all. They got it made. But here I am. I'm struggling. I can't make ends meet. What's going on, God? He says, they don't have troubles like other people. (laughs) They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. I wonder how often we've thought that about people that we look to in society. Man, they got it all made. They, They don't have any problems, no issues like us says, they wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. So these are very prideful people. They're proud of the things they've accumulated, their lifestyle. And he says, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Now that phrase, fat cats, is not like how we would use the word fat today. These people weren't overweight. It simply means they were well fed. They were well thought of. They, they had wealth. Um, So this was a positive thing, actually, in their culture, uh, positive to in the minds of people. It says, for they scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They they look down on other people. They think they're better than others. Uh, And so the people are dismayed and confused, uh, drinking in all of their words. And here, here you have the people of God, and they're hearing God's word in the temple. They're worshiping, and they're hearing about the faithfulness of God, what it means to live faithfully for God. And yet they walk out the doors, and they see a world that's living totally opposite. Friends, how much does this relate I mean, this is just like God gave this to us today. And I believe he has. You know, we, we, we can be confused by the messages and the uh, false truth claims of the world. So people were confused and dismayed. He said, what does God know? They ask. Does the Most High even know what's happening? 
Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. I think I skipped verse 19. Um, it says, They boast against the very heavens, their words strut throughout the earth, and then the people are dismayed and confused. So these, these people are the kind of people that they don't believe in God, and if they think there's a God, they choose not to follow him. They say, I don't need God in my life. So this is the description that Asaph gives of the people that he's talking about. Now we know that this is not a realistic view of the rich and famous. But when you are suffering, when you feel like you're lacking in life, of even the, the basic necessities in life, I think it's easy to look around at other people who seem to have everything and to desire the things that they have. And what a great reminder for us today um, that nothing kills contentment quite like comparison. Let me say that again. Nothing kills contentment in our lives quite like comparison. We know the Apostle Paul wrote about how important it is to learn contentment, to be content in the Lord. He says, I've learned to be content with plenty and with little. You know, some of you may be in a season right now where you feel like you got a lot. It's easy to be content when that's the case. Some of you may be in a season where you feel like you have very little. And God is saying today, I want you to learn contentment. Learn to be content in Christ with what God has given you. So God's promise, uh, his promise to his people is to provide for our needs. But our problem is that we often seek after our greeds. So God promises to provide for our needs. We often seek after our greeds. And then our contentment goes right out the door with it. So I would say that if your goal in life is to try and keep up with the Joneses, you got to have that new car, you got to have the new house, you got to have the toys. you got to have everything. Keep up with the Joneses. You're always going to be left wanting more. It's never going to be enough. It's easy to look around and see how everyone else has what you desire. Well, after giving this detailed description, Asaph repeated the dilemma in verses 13 and 14. He kind of circles back, and we'll throw this up on the screen for you this morning. He says, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. So Asaph was essentially saying, am I wasting my time doing the right things? Why do, why do what's right when the ungodly do what's wrong and they seem to have it all? How often have we felt this way? God, am I just wasting my breath? Am I just wasting my time doing what's right, doing the things that I know you've called me to do? And I think for our students especially, this will ring true. All right, there, there's maybe no greater mission field than your school. If you're in elementary school or middle school or high school or college even, you walk down the halls and, and chances are if you're a Christian that you may be alone in that hallway. There may not be very many. And we, we ask ourselves that question, God, am I just wasting my time? Should I just give in and go with the crowd? Because they seem to be happy. They seem to get everything that they want. Well, again here, we see the negative results of comparison. Far too often, I believe that we try to live our lives, you know, trying to be something or someone that we're not. We seek after things that never truly satisfy, and we end up... In the process, uh, developing a warped view of God and a, a warped view of self. So where the first half of this psalm, I think, seems a little dark, uh, maybe a little depressing, 
Especially if we were to stop here, just say, hey, that's all we got today. Come back next week for part two. You know, I'm not going to do that to you today. Um, the second half provides a turning point in Asaph's life and, and a reminder of the hope that we have as believers. And it begins with verses 15 through 17. He writes, if I had really spoken this way to others. So he's saying all this that I'm seeing, all of this that I'm feeling, if I really would have acted on this, he said, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. And then here's the turning point. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. So he was saying, if I really would have believed this dilemma that I had, and this is a good reminder, don't believe everything that you think. Think about that one. Don't believe everything that you think. A lot of times the things that we think are not true. The Bible tells us to take captive every thought. And we need to weigh that and measure that against his word. So if I would have really spoken this way to others, he's saying if I would have acted on the things I was believing, I would have been a traitor to your people. If I would have believed this dilemma, it would have, if I would have given up my faith in pursuit of the world, then I would have hurt other people in the process as well. So not only would it have hurt me, not only would it have grieved the heart of God, but it would have hurt others in the process. And so the turning point for him is found in verse 17. I love this verse. He says, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. So the turning point for Asaph was worship. The turning point was worship. When he went into the sanctuary and experienced the presence of God in worship, he started to see things clearly. He started to see the world how God sees it. The first thing that he realized is that he had it all wrong. <laughs> the ungodly, who seemed to have it all, at least from a worldly perspective, were actually the ones who are slipping and will eventually have to face the consequences of a life lived apart from God. You know, when you try to gain the whole world, you end up losing your very soul. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 16, verse 26. He says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Friends, don't miss God in your pursuit of the world. When a person doesn't know the Lord, they make choices as though this life is all there is. And what happens is, I think because of our sinful nature, we end up envying these people. We end up looking to their lifestyle and, and wanting that for ourselves, but more times than not, it leads to hurt and broken relationships, anxiety and depression, and a lack of purpose in life. What we accumulate in this life, specific, specifically the material things, has no value in purchasing eternal life. You know, that phrase, um, you don't bring a U-Haul to a funeral, has become more real the past few weeks. We've had two funerals in our church. We've celebrated the lives of two men that I believe lived faithfully for God. But one of the things you didn't see at their funerals were U-Hauls. We don't get to take the things that we accumulate in this life with us. The most important thing, Jesus says, is your soul. It's your relationship with the Lord. And then he continues in verses 18 through 20. He's, he's really seeing here 
the truth. He says, truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. These are the very people that he wrote about. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at their dreams in the morning. So he realized that the rich and famous of his day, the people who put their hope, their joy, their confidence in temporary things were actually living in a dream world. It's kind of like waking up from a a long night's rest and you look over maybe at your significant other, your spouse, or you tell a friend, man, I got to tell you about this dream that I have. It was wild. Like I was in this car and it was flying and we were in outer space and like there was all these sounds and these colors and like you're telling them this because it's just a dream. It's not real. It's fun to share, but it's silly, and you laugh at it. He's saying, when you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. One commentator wrote, do not let your life's goals be so unreal that you awaken too late and miss the reality of God's truth. Now, he's not saying don't have big goals and big dreams in life. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying be careful that your goals are not different from God's. Don't live your life in a dream state. Wake up to the reality of God's word and walk humbly and faithfully in it. After realizing all of this, Asaph returned to God with a confession of trust. We see repentance here. He recognized that he'd been seeing things all wrong and that God is in fact good and that God's way is right. Now this confession is also a prayer, which I think makes perfect sense because that's how we converse with God. Prayer is this amazing gift that God has given us, that we can talk with him anywhere at any time throughout the day. Friends, that is just awesome. And prayer is meant to be our first line of offense, not our last line of defense. You know, I think we looked at Asaph's example. He had to go through a pretty difficult time in wrestling with these before he went to God in prayer. So verses 21 through 26, we see this prayer. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. And he gives us this amazing truth about God. He says, you guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. And then this is our uh, memory verse for today. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. The NIV translation is probably what you're more familiar with. It says, but God remains the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The idea there is that God is really all that I need. God is all that I need. So the psalmist decided to focus here on what he had rather than on what he did not have. And this is a great example for how we can learn to resist temptation when it comes to envying and coveting what other people have, the things that we don't. The reminder is that we should be grateful for what we do have instead of comparing ourselves to the lives of others and what they seem to have. Because most often it's fleeting. 
You know, we're reminded that the things of this world don't even compare to the gift of having a relationship with God. That's the prize. That's what matters most. Well, the last two verses uh, give us really the central truth of this psalm. He wraps it up this way, verses 27 and 28. Those who desert him, talking about those who desert God, will perish. For you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. There's a comparison here between being far from God and being near to God, living in willful disobedience and choosing to live faithfully. You see, the, the wicked or the ungodly may get some good things in this life. But friends, the faithful get God himself. And that is an amazing truth that we can build our lives on. The wicked may get some good things in this life, but the faithful get God himself. Now, we're not given a direct answer here to Asaph's question, why do good things seem to happen to bad people? Instead, we're given the resources and the truths that we need to endure uh, the unfairness dilemma that we all seem to wrestle with at one point or another. Uh, Ozark Christian College professor Matt Stafford, uh, he teaches psalms at the college. Um, He had this to say about this psalm, that God doesn't always give us the answers but he always gives us himself. God doesn't always give us the answers, but he always gives us himself. And so if we take a step back this morning, I think it's easy to see how this psalm is actually bound by the goodness of God. In the midst of his struggle, in the midst of everything that he was seeing in life, this is bound by the goodness of God. Even when things seem bad, God is still good. I love this. The very uh, first few words of verse 1 Uh, He comes out with this statement that truly God is good. Truly God is good. And I think that needs to be our statement today as we leave this gathering this morning, that truly God is good. Whatever is going on in your life. In fact, let's say that together on the count of three. One, two, three. Truly God is good. Truly God is good. And then you jump down to verse 28, the very end of this text, and he says, how good it is to be near God. So not only truly God is good, but truly it is good to be near God. That's where I need to be. God is always good, and it's always good for us to be near him. Even this dilemma and struggle that Asaph experienced was bound by the goodness of God. It's like looking at a painting, maybe of a shipwreck or, you know, a ship caught at sea and If you were to just focus in on one small portion of that painting, you may see um, rigid waves. You may see the people on the ship struggling and in shambles. But if you back up a little bit, you see the sun coming through the clouds. And friends, I think that, that life, more times than not, is about perspective. And here God is saying, come back to me. Come back to my word. As Alan Wan said last week, lay at the feet of the Lord. See things through the lens of Scripture. Life for you may seem terrible right now. Things may seem rocky, but God has a plan, and surely God is good. Amen? God is good. This psalm is classified as a wisdom psalm. We need God's wisdom today, don't we? When good things seem to happen to bad people, 
The question becomes, what are we going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? How are you going to respond as a follower of Jesus? Are you going to be angry? Are you going to be envious? Are you going to be jealous? Or will you look to God and his word and will you rely on the Holy Spirit to help you respond with God's wisdom? Godly wisdom recognizes that other people may have everything that the world has to offer. But if they chase the world, they don't have God. And God is always enough. While Asaph was writing about a personal experience here, I I do believe that he was also speaking on behalf of the nation. This is something that they wrestled with a lot. And how timely is this for us today? We've all struggled with this question at one point or another. And so I think there's some important biblical truths that we can take home with us this week. Uh, Things to act on. Number one, um, just that truth that God is always good and that he is always enough. You may need to say that over and over again to yourself this week. Two, uh, that God is a God of justice. And don't miss this. Because there may be those of you in this room today that are on the the other side of the, the tracks today. That God is a God of justice. There will be judgment for those who choose the world instead of him. And three, God is present with his people. I love this this imagery and this truth about how God holds our right hand. He's near to us. He's our refuge. He's our strength, our source of wisdom. Again, this psalm encourages us to look at the world through the lens of Scripture. There's a lot of fakeness in our world today, is there not? There's a lot, of, a lot of phoniness, a lot of false truth claims that we are bombarded with. We encounter these things on a daily basis. So it's important that we stay immersed in God's word and we learn to see things as they really are. And like Asaph, it's when we engage in the act of worship, whether that's corporately or individually. It can be through song with our church or it can be at home by yourself. It's when we engage in the act of worship that we learn to see things more clearly. So today I want to encourage you to read through book three of the Psalms with your church family over the next few weeks. Um, there, There is so much here for God's people today. And friends, when we begin with the word, we are equipped to live in the world.